Page 5. History's Forgotten Headlines. Catastrophe at the Coconut Grove. This is History's Forgotten Headlines. Here, we revisit some of America's most notorious and shocking murders, scandals, and disasters that once made headlines across the world, and now they've not only fallen to the back pages, but almost been completely forgotten. Everything you're about to hear involves some of the most powerful, wealthy, and beloved Americans of their time. Many are lives of triumph that end only in tragedy. These are history's forgotten headlines. Page 5, Catastrophe at the Coconut Grove. In our past pages, we focused on a particular person or persons, one or two people caught in a crisis or crime with seemingly no way out. But this page involves so many people, so many lives, that now we're going to focus on one place and one historic tragedy. In 1942, the Coconut Grove nightclub sat in the heart of downtown Boston. It was one of the places to be. However, it's no longer remembered for its glitz and glamour, but its devastation. It was the site of the deadliest nightclub fire in the world, and it's second only to a Chicago theater fire as the deadliest single building fire of all time. Affected almost everybody in Boston and outside of Boston at the time. Uh, the, the death toll was huge. I mean, it was almost uh, 500 people. Not all of them died the night of the fire, but the, de the eventual death toll was was close to 500, 500 people. And then there were the people injured, and there were several hundred people that were injured. Um, there was difficulty getting enough caskets to bury all the dead. Um, church bells, which would toll for funerals, were tolling constantly in the area. Um, and on top of that, there were people who were affected in the hospitals who had to treat these horrible, horrible conditions, and they were very affected by it. The firefighters who had to pull out the, the victims, living and dead, and try to get them direct to safety, they were affected by it. Passers-by who were pulled into helping to drive all the victims to the hospitals, taxi drivers, just regular people were pulled in to get people to the hospital. Everybody knew somebody who was affected. The death toll was 492, 492 people. That's not just a number, those are actual lives lost. Most of them burned alive. There were husbands and wives, daughters and sons, people with goals and dreams all out for a night of laughs, music, and dancing. Debbie Gallagher's mother-in-law, Anne, was at the club that night. To be honest with you, she talked about it in spurts. Like a long time, she wouldn't talk about it, and then she would all of a sudden, out of nowhere, start talking about it. But it was something. She was. They said she was 19 in the newspaper, but she was actually 16, and her boyfriend was 19. 
Anne was a high school cheerleader at the time, and she went to the club with her boyfriend, her parents, and his parents. Like many that day, they had gone to the biggest college football game of the year, Boston College versus Holy Cross. At the time, BC was undefeated and ranked number one in the country. Holy Cross was 4-4, four and four, but Holy Cross would go on and upset BC 55-12. to 12. The New York Times actually says it's arguably the biggest upset in college football history. Anne's family was rooting for BC. So that was the first time she ever been to a nightclub. So they went when when they the, they lost. They decided, well, let's go to the nightclub at Coconut Grove, and they had two floors of dancing, and they loved it. She loved to dance, and so she and Fred Jr. were dancing. So it was his. There was there were seven of them. It, it was Fred's older sister who was in college. She was twenty one, and she left early. She left because she ate and left and went back to the hotel. But Anne and the others stayed. Also there that night, the father of John Rizzo III. My dad was John Rizzo Jr., but he never used Jr. because his dad died very young. So he was always John Rizzo. He was a waiter at the Coconut Grove the night of the fire. Often in recent tragedies, the same Mr. Rogers quote is shared where he says his mom would always tell him to look for the helpers in a tragedy. Well, John Rizzo Jr. was without a doubt one of those helpers. I think of him as a guy who had a purpose that night. That's the way I think of him. I, I don't. I don't necessarily say a hero, although I love him to death. But I. I know he would have done that in any situation. He would have made sure the people around him were okay. He. He was always that way. So before we get to John and Anne's stories, it's best to get more of a feel for the club and its history leading up to the night of November 28, 1942. My name is Stephanie Shoro, and I am a journalist and writer in the Boston area. Uh, I've worked for the Boston Herald, the Associated Press, and many other publications. And I got interested in the Coconut Grove when I did my book, Boston on Fire, A History of Fires and Firefighting in Boston. And the Coconut Grove was a chapter in that book. But I became so fascinated with that fire that I wrote a second book just on the Coconut Grove fire, and I continue to research the, the fire. It's a never-ending story. There's always something more to discover about it. We sat down with Stephanie right next to the very side of where the Coconut Grove nightclub once stood. We're inside what's now the Revere Hotel, and behind the hotel, it's an alley renamed in honor of the club. There's also a plaque that marks the spot of one of Boston's most premier nightclubs. The Coconut Grove was considered one of the poshest, if not the poshest, most swell nightclub in Boston. Uh, it was it was known as the place that everybody would go to to see and be seen. And at the time, nightclubs weren't what they are today, especially in the late 1920s. The Coconut Grove nightclub was always considered a nightclub. Uh, the problem when it opened in 1927 is that that was in the uh, middle of Prohibition. 
problem was you couldn't buy liquor at a nightclub. And that was a big problem for anyone who wanted to run a nightclub. But at the time, there were a number of nightclubs in the Boston area. The Mayfair uh, and the Latin Quarter were very close by, and there were many others. So it, it was open at a time when that was the main form of entertainment in Boston, was to go to a nightclub. You could go to a movie, of course, or a, or a sports game, but everybody went to nightclubs. Young, old, um, wealthy, not so wealthy, couples, uh, older couples, younger couples, sailors, soldiers, uh, girls, young girls would go there. It was, it was a melting pot of a lot of different people who would go to these nightclubs. As you heard Stephanie mention, the club first opened in 1927, but changed hands twice in just six years. The pair that started the club had a hard time right from the beginning. The Coconut Grove was opened by uh, kind of a, uh, an interesting pair of people, a guy named Jacques Renard, who was a musician, well-known musician, and Mickey Alpert, who was a kind of an entrepreneur, an entertainer, and together they formed a partnership and they opened this nightclub uh, together. They um, also had some uh, money from someone who proved to be as devious as uh, a Mr. Ponzi. It wasn't Ponzi, but it was someone like a Ponzi who gave them money and then kind of got himself arrested by uh, authorities. So um, they struggled to keep it open, partly because it was the middle of prohibition and they couldn't sell booze, at least not legally. So what they had to do was they had to sell out to a guy named Charles Solomon, or King Solomon, as he was known. And King Solomon was a gangster. That's, that's probably the best way to put it. He was kind of an old-style gangster, walked around in suits, tuxedos. He was known to hold court at the Coconut Grove, uh, and he uh, ran it as a kind of a personal fiefdom. It probably laundered a lot of his money, uh, but he brought in entertainment, uh, and he was quite the personage in Boston at the time. However, uh, he was in another club in uh, 1933 when he was accosted by some other men some issue with he owed them money or they owed him money and he was shot and he staggered out uh, of the place where he was shot saying they got me the dirty rats and that's true because it was in the Boston Herald so from lawlessness to a lawyer the club changed hands once again in 1933 the Coconut Grove was taken over by his lawyer, a guy named Barney Wolanski. And Wolanski was a lawyer. He was a pretty good lawyer. was with a prestigious firm. So he took over the Coconut Grove. And very soon, um, liquor was legal. Uh, Wolanski expanded the club. He opened up uh, a downstairs lounge. He opened up the new lounge, or the Broadway lounge. And he ran it more or less as a business, not kind of as a, a money laundering operation. Um, so it was less flamboyant but is more on solid ground financially. But Barney was no white knight for the Coconut Grove. While he was liked by his employees, he made sure he got every cent he could out of the club. A lot of his employees spoke very highly about him. Um, they felt he was a straight shooter. Uh, he ran the business pretty straightforward. He cut a lot of corners. He cut a lot of corners in terms of electricity and looking the other way in terms of zoning and other regulations. But the people who worked for him actually had a fairly high opinion of him uh, as somebody who uh, was a good businessman. Uh, now, it's interesting about Barney Wolanski because Barney Wolanski had a brother, James, 
Wolanski, James. And I know this is going to sound very odd in Boston, but Barney was uh, kind of on one side of the law, very straight, straight shooter, and his brother James was on the other side of the law. So a brother was a gangster and a gambler. So, you know, I don't know if you can think of um, another example, <clears throat> like the Bulgers uh, later on, but um, it was interesting that Barney was a pretty pretty much a lawyer and kind of ran things straight. His brother, James, was not that type, uh, but yet they, they worked together on the, on the Coconut Grove. And together, in 1942, the two were running what was one of, if not the, most popular nightclubs in the city. Very, very popular. And um, one of the reasons I know that is that because in doing my research in this book, I've been approached by so many people who said, did you know that my grandfather or my great-uncle or my great-grandmother was going to go to the Coconut Grove the night of the fire, but the last minute they went somewhere else? So it seemed as if everybody in Boston was going to go to the Coconut Grove that night. Now, the first few times I thought, what a great story. The ten t I've heard the story like hundreds of times. And I realized it, it demonstrates a, an underlying truth that this was a very popular place. And after the fire, people believed that it could have happened to them. It, they could have been among the victims. So there was that feeling that everybody in Boston went to the Coconut Grove, so it could have happened to anybody. In fact, it was so popular that on the night of November 28th, there were at least a thousand people in the club. That's important to note because the maximum capacity for the club was less than 500. People remember that there were so many coats that had been checked that they were just piled on the floor. Um, waiters kept bringing more and more tables out to put on the dance floor to accommodate all the diners who were trying to eat that night. And you remember we mentioned the BC Holy Cross game. Well, someone else went to that game. And then the nightclub after, it was Hollywood superstar Buck Jones. Buck Jones was a very popular cowboy star. He had he was in at least 166 westerns. So he had his own fan club. Um, he was in Boston to do uh, a, a promote himself, promote his movies, do a bond drive. Um, and so he was extremely well known at the time. Again, it wasn't just celebrities there that night. Couples included um, a wedding party included a f four or five brothers from one family. Um, there were a number of people who were left orphans by the fire. Um, there were um, people in the movie industry who were there with Buck Jones, were showing him around town, and these were people who ran some of the movie theaters. People at BC had planned to go to the Coconut Grove after the game to celebrate because they, they thought they were going to win. Well, they didn't win, so the BC um, BC officially canceled the party, but a number, a few BC fans went ahead and went to the Coconut Grove, and a number of Holy Cross fans did go to the Coconut Grove to celebrate um, their surprise victory. Uh, so it was a, there was doctors, would be doctors, a doctor student, someone who's studying to be a doctor there. You get the idea. People of all walks of life, about a thousand in total, packed into the club, having a great time. The entertainment was also par for the course. 
some people were probably trying to dance. There was probably not, not enough room, but there was musicians playing. There were floor shows with uh, chorus girls going on. So uh, it, was, it was a typical night of a lot of entertainment, a variety of entertainment. Ann Gallagher was on that dance floor on the main floor with her boyfriend, Freddie, and they were already making plans for their second trip back. They were talking about how the roof used to open up in the summer so people could dance under the stars. And she wished that she could go again. She, she, they talked about it. Well, let's come back here when we are 21 and dance under the stars. And while Anne was dancing, John Rizzo was hard at work. Then suddenly... He was a waiter. He was in the dining room. When he heard a commotion from the lounge area, he thought it was a fight. And he was busy, and he looked up and all hell was breaking loose. A large fireball was seen in one of the decorations, a fake palm tree. And it started to spread, and most importantly, it caught the ceiling. There was a cloth that covered the ceiling of the Melody Lounge, and that caught in fire, and that spread extremely quickly. So the fire started in the basement and quickly spread throughout the Melody Lounge, rushed up the stairs from the Melody Lounge into the main area, and then from the main area into the Broadway Lounge. So it, it basically swept through the entire complex of the Coconut Grove. So he looked and he saw smoke and flames coming towards him with people rushing towards him at the same time. As he was trying to get away from it all, he got jammed up in the door jam, which led to down cellar, and he got pushed down the stairs. He was okay, and he knew where he was because he was an employee. And it was a makeshift bar down there with a window going into an alleyway above the bar. So he jumped on the bar, opened the window, saw where it was, then came back in and hollered to the top of the staircase for people to come down here. And he was pushing them out. Uh, it was a good 10 or 12 people. Uh, he pushed out in the alleyway, and they were all uh, unhurt. When the fire broke out, they were on the dance floor, and the parents were having cocktails, and they had already finished dinner. And the last thing she remembers, Fred Jr. said, Ian, get down on the ground and start crawling, and I'm right behind you. And somehow he grabbed his mother. Anne doesn't remember getting out because she thinks they went through the revolving door. She doesn't know how he grabbed, how the mother got grabbed by him, but the next thing that she realized, she's laying out next to his mother on the sidewalk. And he went back in to get his dad and her parents, and they all perished in the fire. And then uh, he went out to the alleyway, and, uh, and there was apartments, I think apartments above the restaurant, 
and there was a lady with a fur coat on wanting to jump. Uh, so she did. And my dad put out her, his arms and caught her. And he had a bad back ever since. <laughs> but she got saved also. Four hundred ninety-two people killed. Every single death tragic. But there were some more remarkable stories of survival, like Ann and John. One person survived in the Melody Lounge behind the bar because he, he wet a cloth, put it over his face, and just got down behind the bar. And he survived. There was a case of a doctor in a in a um, the main lounge when they first heard the cries, something like fight, fight, or fire, fire. He was he was with a group of people, and he stood up to see what was going on, and he was hit by a huge wave of hot air that just kind of knocked him out, boom, hit him in the face. So he went down to the ground, and he survived, but the rest of this party did not survive. The fire only lasted about 15 minutes, but it was 15 minutes of hell, and chaos continued. Fire trucks and ambulances rushed to the scene. One fire truck was already about a block away when the fire broke out because it was responding to a car fire. The firefighters saw the smoke and were first on scene. Eventually, there were nearly 200 firefighters who responded. The magnitude of the scene was just overwhelming. There weren't enough ambulances, so neighbors and people driving by were flagged down and victims were thrown into cars and trucks and rushed to any hospital that had room. Hundreds of people desperately needed medical attention. Oddly enough, the fire itself was put out rather quickly. John wasn't injured at all, even after saving all those people. And then my uncle, his brother, was also a waiter, and my dad kept hollering for him. He couldn't find him. So very late, late in the evening, he goes home and he sees a lot of Cadillacs out front of his house. We had a cousin that was a uh, funeral director. So my dad's mother called her first cousin and he came right over. He was Caggiano. He became mayor of Lynn and he died in office. But he had all his Cadillacs there and they all got in these different Cadillacs and went to all the different hospitals in Boston looking for my Uncle Danny. And they found him, I think, at Mass General, and his hands had been burnt pretty bad. I don't know how he got out, and I don't think my father ever knew how he got out. And uh, they found him, and they, the family was okay. As for Anne, she didn't have any burns, but did have significant amounts of smoke inhalation, and her story got even more tragic. She had lost her boyfriend, Freddie, her boyfriend's dad, and both of her parents. She was in Boston Hospital for like two months. And when she came home, she had two younger sisters. And the, the whole family got split up. They all went, had to live with three different families. Um, because there was quite an age difference between Anne and then the youngest was three. Um, the sister was three, the other one was like six, and she was 16. 
As for Freddie's dad, listen to the tragic irony surrounding his death. He was a theater owner and owned like three or four theaters. And he lived on Roxbury Street in Keene. But he had one of his theaters burned to the ground and he was petrified of dying in a fire. So he had a house built, fireproof, on Roxbury Street in Keene, which still stands. It's a white stucco house, all stucco and steel. And he ended up dying in fire. So he, so Fred Jr.'s dad right. was petrified of dying in a fire. Petrified. And he ended up dying in the Coconut Grove fire. Exactly. Again, this family is not alone. 492 people perished, and that includes Hollywood superstar Buck Jones. He actually survived the fire for a few days, but then succumbed to his injuries. And to think, it all could have been prevented. So the investigation begins, and questions start being asked. What would have caused this horrific situation? What exactly fueled the fire has been highly debated for years. Here is what we do know. In the Melody Lounge, which is downstairs from the main lounge, during the evening, uh, someone, a soldier, sailor, loosened a bulb in one of the uh, fake palm trees that was down there just to give him and his date a little more uh, darkness and privacy. The bartender saw that and um, told the bus boy to go in and put the light bulb back in. The boy stood on a chair, uh, but the bulb came out in his hand, so he lit a match to see where the socket was. He put the bulb back in, but immediately, almost immediately afterwards, a fire was seen in that palm tree. And Mr. Rizzo knew that busboy. And he felt sorry that he got blamed for it. Uh, it was true that he did what they said he did. But it was also true that the materials that this gentleman was working around were as flammable as you can get. So in normal circumstances, if he had done what he did and the materials were like today's materials, it would have been a non-subject. I mean, there's a lot of speculation if, if there was some sort of what they would call an accelerant there, that's something that propelled what looked like a fireball. Because a lot of the witnesses survived, survived with a fireball, yet yellow, red, with shots of blue, different things. But basically a fireball started in the um, Melly Lounge and then moved through the club. So people in the dining area saw this huge, like, ball of fire coming at them. <laughs> moved over them and then somehow it spread into the Broadway lounge that's that is just the most peculiar thing because that area was not open you couldn't customers could not pass from the main dining room to the to the Broadway lounge they the staff could go through a series of um of back hallways but somehow that fire spread from a downstairs through the main hallway all the way over to another lounge so and again it was described as a fireball and 
the thing about the fire is also it 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 sought oxygen. Yeah. So even when people got doors open, a lot of the doors were locked. But when they finally got them open, the fire would go out that way because the fire seeks oxygen. So people would break windows and the fire would roar out those windows. The weird the, the weird thing about the Kogan Grove fire is that it was actually put out very quickly. Uh, we're talking about an event that was like from 15 minutes to half an hour. I mean, it was very very quick, the way the flames moved through the club, um, and Strangely enough, the club did not—it did not achieve what we would, what firefighters would call flashover. Um, in the uh, Rhode Island club, the Station Nightclub fire, uh, which you have, there's film of that, but yeah. you can see that it basically reached such a temperature that everything within the club burned, and the place burned to the ground. That's not what happened in the Coconut Grove. The fire moved all the way through it. And firefighters were able to put it out, but but in the main built in the main dining room, for example, there were still palm trees with fronds. There were still tables. There were still bongo drums, it, it, paper items. So it didn't achieve that kind of flashover uh, that would incinerate everything in there. And that is one of the abiding curiosities about this fire, is that there was this fireball that moved through the club. And how how did it move so quickly? And was something was was there an accelerant involved? We don't know. We may never know. So the big question is, how could so many people die in so little amount of time? Well, there were several things wrong with the building. Before we get to that, here's a quick reminder about the owner of the club, Barney Wolanski, and another tragic story to go with his now infamous reputation. He was very tough. He was very determined to make every cent that he could out of the Coconut Grove. In fact, there's a very tragic story that one of his cashiers refused to leave the cash box that was in the Coconut Grove because she didn't want to get in trouble with, with her boss, and she ended up dying at her station there. So, as for the inconceivably high death toll? That's because there was something functionally wrong with almost every exit in the club. That's a description provided to me by a guy named Casey Grant from the National uh, Fire Protection Association. The fire didn't kill the people as much as the inability to get out of the building did. People rushed from the Melody Lounge up the stairs. There was a safety door at the top of the stairs from the Melody Lounge. And it was even equipped with a bar that was supposed to be when you pushed on it, you, were, you should have been able to get out. That door was locked and bolted shut so people couldn't get out there. The revolving door with the crush of people, there was a revolving door on the main floor. That was the main entrance. Most people went to the main entrance to get out. That's the, the exit. That's where they came in. That's where they wanted to get out. But there were so many people trying to get out that that jammed. It just simply wouldn't let people out. On the other side of the club, there were there was a double doors uh, that were locked. Locked from the inside. Locked from the outside. They managed to get them open. There were other doors, but they were funk. They were locked, or there's something wrong with them, or they weren't lit. In the Broadway Lounge, there were two doors leading to the Broadway Lounge. The outer door opened outward with the flow of traffic. 
but the inner door opened inward. So what happened when people were trying to get out, the door got pushed shut and no one could get out there. So the real problem, the real tragedy of the Coconut Grove is not that, I mean, many people were badly burned and died of lung injuries, but the problem was they simply could not get out. The reason the door at the top of the stairs was bolted shut was sadly so simple, it's stunning. It was, um, as far as we can figure, it was bolted shut because uh, Barney didn't want people running out on their bills. That was simple as that. They didn't want people running out on their money. They wanted to pay their bills, so they didn't want people sneaking out. That's simple answer. And if you can hear the frustration and the emotion in Stephanie's voice, I could too when we sat down. I asked her why. I think about all the people who um, never got to live their lives, never got to finish their lives, um, or who were hurt badly for the rest of their life. Um, and I think about what a waste, what a, what a pointless, pointless waste. The feelings on the fire are even more profound and still raw for the family of Anne Gallagher, even after she passed away in 2017 at the age of 90. I think it, it made her a different person. I mean, she still loved to dance and sing and party and and do all that, but she, uh, I think, I feel that she was a different person after it, definitely. When she would recall the fire, was it hard for her emotionally to talk about it? She... It's very hard to explain. Um, she, I think, was still suffering from post-traumatic because her daughter died a year before she did from Jacob Crutchfield disease. And when we went to the nursing home to tell her that she would, that Sue was dying and she wouldn't in Colorado, there was no reaction. No reaction. She just said, who's going to pay my bills now? Not one tear, not one emotion of uh, tragedy or, you know. Heartbreak. Heartbreak. That's the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Because if it was one of my kids, my God, I'd be out of my mind. But she just was wondering who was going to pay her bills. And I said, did you hear what I said? And she said, yes, who's going to pay my bills? And I was like, wow. And did I, you think the fire hardened her? I think it certainly did. Certainly did. So I think she deals with death with in anger. Or... Anything bad that happens. She's very quiet, recluse, um, doesn't like to dwell on it or talk about it too much. And I asked my husband, I said, did your mom ever talk about it a lot? Like when, she, when you were younger, she, he said, never. 
I said, did you ever ask her questions? He goes, I never wanted to. But to the opposite of Anne, questions were commonplace for the Rizzo family before John passed away in 2016. He was 96 years old. He always told me that if God wanted him, he would have taken him that night. So we didn't mind talking about his adventure, if you want to call it that. By the end of it all, the owner of the Coconut Grove was charged and convicted of manslaughter. Barney served four years in prison before being pardoned because he was extremely ill. He then died of cancer nine weeks later, and the night of the fire, he wasn't even at the club. He was in the hospital recovering from a heart attack. And if you're curious on if he ever expressed any guilt for being held responsible for the deadliest nightclub fire of all time, well, here's your answer. He actually told reporters he wished he died there with the rest of them in the fire. So I think he was very broken up about what happened. It was not in his intention to do anything like this. Still to this day, there are reminders of the fire all around us. When you go into any public building, take notice. Fire codes and laws were changed forever. You know those glowing exit signs? That's because of the coconut grove. Outward swinging exit doors? That's because of the coconut grove. And for any building that has a revolving door, there has to be at least one normal outward swinging door. And you guessed it. It's because of the coconut grove. All the people were rushing to the exits that they came in on because they, they, they were going to the front door where they came in. And that's where the revolving door got jammed. And people burnt to death, stuck in those doors. It's been reported that fire officials later testified had the doors swung outward, at least 300 lives could have been spared. And it's those kind of hindsight details that only add to the emotions surrounding this tragedy. What do you think she's angry about? Did that happen to her? Did that happen to her parents? That she only had them for 16 years? She was separated from her sisters and, and you know, their whole life for all, all their, most of their, when she passed away, her youngest sister was right by her side. Writing this book was, um, it was a very emotional, um, it was a very emotional project to do. Um, I mean, I'm a journalist, so you kind of, and I covered 9-11 and, and all sorts of things like that, but you, you think about that. You think, I think, I think about the obligation we have to the dead to inf make sure that fire codes and safety rules are enforced elsewhere. Uh, I think of people who want to cut corners or who think it can't happen to them or can't happen to their building and that's what I that's what I put my energy into talking about when I talk about this but um, I think I think about the obligation that we have as a as a city to memorialize and make sure that these deaths and the hurt of a lot of people, including firefighters, um, is still recognized. And that's why there is a move right now to put up some kind of better memorial to the Coconut Grove, not on the site, but near the site. And 
you can, I mean, memorials, it's, what, what, what might it be? An image, a statue, a fountain? I don't know. But it might force people to think about it. And to when they go into a building, make sure there's, they always know where the exit is and know where the extra exits are. And if they see exits being blocked, if they see a problem, say something. Um, if they're trying to get into a nightclub and it's too crowded to get in, instead of getting angry, just say, you know, that's just the way it is. That protects us. Oh, and remember that BC versus Holy Cross game? And there would have been 200 more people there if BC had won the football game. They had a whole section ready for them, and they lost, and they didn't show. But they could have been a lot worse. They were already at double capacity, too. I know, and they were going to have more. If that football game went the other way, it would have been jammed. One more thing. If you've listened to our previous pages, this is for you. The bookkeeper for the Coconut Grove was none other than Rose Necco, the ex-wife of Charles Ponzi. She was forced to get a job when her husband was deported back to Italy, and the night of the fire, she had left the club early. And we'll leave you with that. I'm Justin Doherty, and while the headlines may be forgotten, just don't forget about us. Mm-hmm.